Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. I want to say thank you so much for the incredible response we've had to our Take Back the Flag campaign. Please send your stories, your pictures, and your videos of you and Old Glory to info at lincolnproject.us. Guys, let's keep it going. It's not their flag. It's not his flag. It's our flag. It belongs to all of us, and we are going to take it back. Take back the flag. Thanks, everyone. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Ben Terrace, writer for the Washington Post's style section with a focus on national politics. His first book, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers, Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses His Mind, is now out and available wherever fine books are sold. He's a graduate of Brandeis University and is coming to us live in studio today from Washington, D.C. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So as I mentioned before we started recording, I hadn't heard about your book until I heard your interview with Rick Wilson on his podcast. I have to tell you, there was a lot of old home week for me in your book. Ian Walters and I, who's featured in the book, go back to the 1996 Republican convention together. No kidding. Where we ran around as 20-year-old idiots at things like the Melee for Haley, which was Haley's gigantic birthday party on this beautiful lawn in San Diego. It was also my first experience with another person briefly featured in the book, Frank Luntz. I was doing man-on-the-street interviews at the San Diego Zoo, of all things, <laughs> getting people to sign releases and all this when Frank and his crew of whoever they were showed up and told us that they were taking over and that we were no longer needed. Again, I was like, I don't know who this weird guy with the bad hair is, but all right. And I went back to, you know, whatever van I were, or whatever trailer I was sitting in at the convention center. And they said, what are you doing here? And I said, some guy named Frank Luntz just told me to come back here. And that set off a whole row of people far above me on the food chain. So I just want you to know it was a very interesting sort of tiptoe back through my own political past. Yeah, it's like a high school reunion for you. Yes, if all the high school reunions were filled with as weird of people as I guess I am. So... You talk about how the rest of the country loses its mind. As I mentioned, I grew up in D.C. till I was about 15, then we moved to Texas. I moved back to work for George W. Bush. But it never ceases to, I guess, amaze me is the right word. And you deal with this now all day, every day of the disconnection from reality that the Beltway, I-495, seems to create both as a physical barrier, as a road, but also as a sort of psychological membrane for folks that live there. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, Washington can be a bubble, but it really shouldn't be a bubble. I mean, of all the cities in the world, or in the country anyway, it sort of feels like Washington has like the most potential to represent the rest of the country because people do come here from everywhere. I mean, for a while, like it was, people thought of it as this real transient place where you'd come for a couple of years and leave. I think people stick around longer now than they used to probably, but there should be like a real reflection of the rest of the country because that's what it's made up of. And yet, for whatever reason, when people get here, 
it's almost like they lose track of where they came from sometimes. And I think that can happen because the way that you can be successful here is to kind of follow in the footsteps of other people, to attach yourself to people who are already influential or powerful. And if you're following their lead instead of following your gut or instead of following, you know, the lessons you learn from back home, you kind of become a reflection of Washington more than a reflection of the rest of the country. That's a good point. You talk about in the book about congressional staffers coming to Washington, D.C., young, and finding out that the job sucks. It's underpaid. It's very long hours. You get credit for nothing and blame for everything. But what's interesting to me, Ben, is like, that's not a new phenomenon. That's been as long as I can remember now, again, growing up there, you know, as an intern at the RNC, running stuff to the Hill. I was a page during the summer of 93 for the House. Like, this was part of the deal, that working on the Hill was almost a continuation of college, right? Everybody lived bunkhouse to bunkhouse. Everybody was out every night. You know, Thursday nights were huge because Congress was out. The members had all gone home. Everybody had second jobs, right? It was not unusual to run into somebody you knew working as a server or a bartender or something like that. But to your point about coming and staying, so many of my friends who went there, they did their couple years. They worked in a Senate office. They worked in a House office. Maybe they worked for an agency. They're like, I'm getting the hell out of here. And so it was an interesting dynamic to see that people are like, well, I want to come here, but I want to make enough money to live the life I want to live and have some rewarding future when like politics rarely offers any of those things. Yeah. One of the things, though, that's changing, like, yeah, the jobs have sucked for a long time, but like the way that people deal with that is changing. Uh, you know, I've, I've been covering Washington now for 12 years, which is a lot longer than I thought. You know, I thought I'd be here. I promised my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, that we'd be here for a year. It's been 12. And part of the reason is because it's kind of great in a lot of ways, right? Like I'm not a real political guy. I didn't care about the horse race and even the rat race for that matter. Like it's not a natural fit for me, but like it's an interesting place. The people are interesting. And what's different now about the job sucking is people are kind of willing to talk about it. You know, there's an anonymous Instagram account called Dear White Staffers, which has made a huge splash on the hill by kind of airing a lot of the grievances that normally are kept bottled up by staffers. People are trying to form unions. People are talking to the press, to people like me. What I think the book that I wrote is unlike any Washington book that's ever come out. I mean, I have to say that, right? It's my book. I want it to sell. But I honestly believe that. I think it's fun and entertaining and dark, and you're going to laugh your way through it and then also be like, was that funny or should I be worried? But what makes it really interesting to me is that the characters are rich, and I was able to find people that have interesting stories, dynamic drama, and are willing to talk to me about it. And I think that there's a time in Washington where if you were a staffer, and, and this is the case for a lot of staffers still, you're just supposed to disappear. You just do the work. You have to be kind of like a, a robot almost. You know, the boss is the only person that matters. And I've made a career now of finding people who are sort of behind the scenes and showcasing them and saying, like, these are the people that sort of make Washington work or the ones that make Washington not work. And aren't they weird? <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the story, you know? That's the thing. I mean, I've experienced this, too. And, and I, I do think, I mean, I'm in my late 40s now. And, you know, I came up in a time in politics where, you know, as an intern, you were a rented mule. Right. And this was the thing you had to do. On the 2000 Bush campaign, I was an advanced man working for $40 per diem, right? And I think I got my dry cleaning paid for every seven days if I was on the road because I knew, Ben, that if I didn't want to do it or I complained, there were 15 guys behind me willing to do it, right? And for the, I don't know, 
I think I got paid finally in like July of 2000, right? After six months on the road, seven months on the road. But I was happy to do it because it was exciting. I'd worked for Bush when he was governor, right? So this was sort of like he was my guy. But there was never under any misapprehension that if you were the squeaky wheel, if you didn't do the best you could, that they'd find somebody else because there were plenty of people lined up. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's still the case in a lot of ways in Washington. I just had a story I just wrote about a guy who was Tommy Tuberville's national security advisor. Okay. Sure. Just quit. Right? Yeah. Or resigned. Or yeah. Whatever, he got fired, resigned yeah. after my story came out. The thing about him, right, is like in a lot of ways, he represented how different things had gotten in Washington. He was a national security advisor for Tommy Tuberville. There's really words that should never have. I know. Well, even that is crazy, right? <laughs> like a former college football coach who now is like, you know, stymieing the Pentagon, keeping them from being, being able to even nominate and promote flag officers and generals because of this one senator has a national security advisor whose story is even weirder than the college football coach. I mean, this guy, Morgan Murphy, was an intern at Vanity Fair. He worked for Graydon Carter. He became a food writer at Forbes magazine and Southern Living. He had a bacon line that he had himself. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. You know, he wrote books about eating his way through the South and then would go on QVC and hawk them. And then he became a national security advisor for a senator. And all that is weird. All that is different. His story is like, you know, he was a three-piece suit wearing raconteur. And when I profiled him, he resigned. And my understanding is a big reason why is because he got out in front of the boss. You're supposed to just be a guy who does the job and the boss takes the credit, maybe if there's blame to spread around, then the staff can get some blame. <laughs> you can spread blame, but don't take credit. And so in some ways, this guy's story and the stories that I have in the book are a showcase of the way in which Washington is totally fundamentally changed and the ways in which it has remained the same. Well, and, you know, you talk about this guy, you know, Morgan. Is that his name, Morgan? Yeah, Morgan, yeah. Who, did he ever actually have any national security experience? He did. I mean, it wasn't like he was a complete out of left field choice. But his story to get to Washington was weird. So he he was, a, he was a captain in the Naval Reserves. You know, he went to Afghanistan and would like, you know, he did media kind of stuff, you know, would brief General Petraeus and like, you know, right. so there was some background. Totally, story, totally. Yeah. It wasn't like it made, it made no sense at all. But what happened was in the Trump years, he got called into active duty and went to the Pentagon to do like social media for the Pentagon. But because it was so chaotic there, he very quickly rose through the ranks and became essentially the press secretary of the Pentagon. He was like the spokesman for the Department of Defense. And like, you know, that rise from just like some guy who came in off the street, you know, with a food critic background and naval experience in the Pentagon, all of a sudden speaking on behalf of. Yeah, millions of millions of men and women in the military. That's like, oh, the Trump years were really weird, obviously. Right. And then what happens is after the Trump years are over, I mean, over, right? Like he's still around and, and maybe president again. But in that interregnum, all these people who sort of, you know, not to be too mean about it, had no business being in the jobs that they were in, 
all of a sudden are players in Washington. Well, what happens to them now? That was the point of this book is like, well, what happens to all these people now? But that's, I think, a really good point as someone who used to be an establishment Republican and has plenty of friends now, a lot of former friends, too, who were establishment Republicans. A lot of folks wouldn't go to work for him. Right. And then maybe a few started to slip, you know, and they the, all the rationalizations that I'm sure you've lived with every day. But for a guy like Trump in this kind of environment from the White House on down, it takes a certain kind of person who is willing to put up with the antics and the constant chaos and anarchy and then the bad behavior. And the truth is, is that there's a lot of people who are probably supremely qualified who are like, I'm never going to go work there. So then you get guys like this Morgan person or this guy, Robert Strick, who becomes, you know, again, has no business making, you know, look, it's America, make millions of dollars however you want. But this guy is now raking in millions of dollars from the Saudis, from Anybody who wants representation but polite D.C. society, diplomatic society, will have nothing to do with. And he's like, yeah, I'll take him. Yeah, Strick is a, a really interesting character. And look, to give him some credit, like he figured out how to make it work, right? And so his story, and I imagine most people don't know it, this is kind of emblematic of the characters I have in this book, which is, in my opinion, some of the most interesting people that you probably haven't heard of already, right? Like it's a Trump book without Donald Trump being in it. And so Strick is a good representation of that. He was a longtime lobbyist who like never really made it work. You know, he made a living, but then he kind of, you know, felt like he was bounced from Washington, ended up having a vineyard in Oregon, making money elsewhere, but always wanted to be a player in Washington and never could. When Trump was running in 2016, Strick was some low level kind of volunteer type, you know, uh, an honorary helper representing him in Oregon, right? Like not really a key state, but he started to get to know the people who helped Trump get elected. And when Trump on election night, he came to Washington, Strick came to Washington. And when Trump won, it was just like, holy shit, like, uh, you know, I, I have a chance to make something happen here. Well, holy shit was what the rest of us said, too, just for different reasons. <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of people said holy shit, but not everybody was like, holy shit, there's an opportunity. And like, you know, he didn't even know how that opportunity was going to come. And it came in the weirdest way possible. He was out, you know, smoking cigars after four days of partying at the Four Seasons in Georgetown, and a dog comes up and sniffs his crotch, and he's like, what the, what's going on here? A woman comes and is like, oh, sorry about that, that's my dog, and she has an accent, and he can't quite place it, and he's like, oh, like, where are you, from England? And she's like, I'm not from fucking England, I'm from New Zealand. Like, and she was mad because she happened to be working at the New Zealand embassy, and like so many embassies, so many people in Washington, nobody was prepared for Donald Trump to win, and so she didn't know how to connect her bosses her country with Trump. And when she mentioned that, Strick was like, oh, I can do that. I can do that for you. And he didn't know if he really could, but like he knew he had a chance. He had phone numbers of people who could have Trump's phone number. He got Trump's phone number. Trump's phone number. Exactly. Now, this is this is at this point now, Ben, the president elect yes. of the United States of America. Oh, yeah. I got his cell. Yeah. And he just got it. And then he <laughs> connected them. And all of a sudden he was just on the path to riches. And look, I mean, again, credit where it's due, like this dude hustled and was able to like work these connections and figure out how to, you know, fill this void. It was a huge void. You had all these people in Washington ready to just rake it in when Hillary Clinton became president. And then when it wasn't Hillary Clinton, all these people were like, well, what the hell are we supposed to do now? We don't know how to get in touch with this guy. Strick did. He's a cowboy hat wearing, 
ostrich boot wearing guy who lives out of town on a farm called Alibi Farm. He's willing to work for like, you know, kind of seedy people in different countries. And he could make these connections to Trump world and just absolutely rake it in. And like, I think he might have made personally more money than almost any lobbyist in all of Washington. And, you know, that's part of the story of this book is, is that. But it's also like, OK, then Biden becomes president. Things don't go back to normal. There's no such thing as normal anymore. But it's not the same chaos that it was under Trump. What does a guy like Strick do? It becomes a lot harder to take advantage of a system that kind of in some ways reverts back to the way that it was. That's the other part is that for all of its weirdness and, you know, it can be frustrating. D.C. does have a rhythm. It does have a tempo. It does have a way that things work. Are they the best way? No, I don't know what the best way would be. You know, there are, you know, look, money still buys everything, right? You talk about Gabe Bankman Freed. Let's talk about money for a second, right? The brother of now Sam Bankman Freed, who, you know, if, you know, I don't know when or if he'll go to trial, but let's say there's a non zero chance, a significant non zero chance he'll be a federal inmate at some point, right? And they just start splashing money around and talking about what was it called? Effective altruism, the kind of stuff that only works in like Marin County, California. And Washington, D.C. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of like a data centric philosophy that's like maximize your good. You know, it basically like taken to its extreme. It's like you could tell somebody by not giving all of the money you have to malaria prevention, you're basically killing people. I mean, it's kind of brilliant in a place like Washington because it's a way to spread around your own money and say, oh, no, it's not about influence. It's about earning to give. I'm not here to buy influence. I don't care about cryptocurrency, which obviously Sam Bankman-Fried cares about cryptocurrency. But you can pretend that it's all about, in Gabe's case, pandemic prevention. And look, I think Gabe Bankman-Fried, who ran an organization called Guarding Against Pandemics, I do believe he would have liked to prevent pandemics. Well, but also who wouldn't? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think it's it is all a ruse. But what happened was in Washington, people here don't care enough about pandemics on its own to just take meetings with a guy because he has a, an organization called How to Prevent Pandemics. They take these meetings because there's the chance for millions of dollars in outside spending. There's the chance for an endorsement from Gabe Bankman-Fried that, you know, the whole crypto world might be paying attention to. And so all of a sudden, these Two brothers who have no real political acumen are the biggest power players in democratic politics for a couple of years. And like that has to do with the Trump era, too. Right. I mean, all of a sudden people are looking for new philosophies, new cults to join, new streams of money. When Donald Trump is president, it's really easy to raise a ton of money in the hashtag resistance because there's a bad guy in office when he's gone. Some of that dries up and all of these places that, you know, need this money have to look to like, you know, a couple of brothers who have billions of dollars to spare. Right. And let me bring these two things together, which is you mentioned what's the Hunt heiress's name? Yeah. Leah Hunt Hendricks. So Leah Hunt Hendricks is the granddaughter of H.L. Hunt, who is a legendary, exotic, very weird Texas Dallas oil billionaire. Right. Did he start the Kansas City Chiefs? I don't know if he started it. His his son oh, yeah, Lamar. Uh, was the only, yeah, Lamar and then Lamar Jr. Like, yes, the Hunts and the Kansas City Chiefs. Right. But it was interesting. And it was it felt this particular passage when she's talking about, quote unquote, new money felt very like out of succession. Right. When Shiv is giving Tom the hard time about being, you know, a striver, 
And she's sort of like, I'm here. I'm of money. I have all these people at my house. And now these guys just show up with all this brand new money. Like, who the hell are they? Yeah, it's weird, right? So her grandfather, H.L. Hunt, was maybe the richest man in the world when he died. I mean, that's how it was reported. And it was because he struck oil in a bunch of places and had an oil corporation that made a ton of money. I mean, in some ways, in that moment, the crypto mining was not that different than the oil industry was before. It's like a couple of guys got in early. They found the the way to make money off of this. Maybe it wasn't because they mined and found crypto, you know, Bitcoin or whatever, but they found the tools to sell or the the exchange to have to get richer than anyone. And it's just sort of like this shift of who has power. Are you more powerful if you're the person who just struck it rich right now or if you're from this kind of long line of money? And what makes Leah's story so fascinating is H.L. Hunt was this right wing kind of populist type, loved Joe McCarthy, you know, kind of a conspiracy minded guy who had a worldview that is the opposite of Leah Hunt Hendrix's. And she's, you know, this kind of next generation or next, next generation trying to kind of unwind some of the work that her grandfather did. And, you know, the reason that I I like this book is because of characters like that, where there's tension and generational tension and personal drama and, you know, what it's like to deal with your family and the wealth in the family and have relationships and be worried that everybody in this business only cares about you for money when you really have ideas. You know, it's just this place, Washington, can make people feel crazy and go crazy and go through so many human things. People forget that there's like actual human drama here. And in a way, like succession, it's heightened. It's like the, the everything feels more intense and more important because there's money and politics and it's just all wrapped up into this one weird place. You know, somebody asked me what it was like to grow up in Washington and work in Washington. And I said, you have to imagine a place where everyone that works there, at least within, you know, government or attached to government politics, political bureaucrats, as I call them, think tanks, associations, all that. They all believe that they're the most important person on earth at that moment. And if they weren't in their seat every morning, that the earth would spin off its axis. Right. You (laughs) know, and you could see it at, you know, all of the receptions. And you mentioned uh, the one guy who's betting on his own races, which I'm never going to be okay with probably Ben, and I'm never going to get used to even the idea that especially someone who considers himself both a consultant and a pollster would do that. But, you know, it's like they're always looking over your shoulder, right? Like you're at the reception on the roof. Doesn't matter. There's a million roofs. And like, what do you do? Oh, uh uh-huh. And so like that's not new either. But now, you know, just think about this. When I was a kid there, right, D.C. was not what it is today. It was a dangerous place. Capitol Hill was literally a dangerous place. D.C. was the murder capital of the world. We would drive from northern Virginia. My dad would park underneath the Longworth House office building. We would go up to his office. We would do whatever he needed to do. We'd get back in the car and we'd drive back to northern Virginia without ever having breathed fresh air of Washington, D.C., And so all of this money has now been compounded, right? There weren't nice restaurants. I doubt there was a, I don't know when there was a Michelin star restaurant for the first time in Washington, but it's not, it wasn't when I was there. No, it might even be, the first Michelin star might have only been a couple of years ago, to be honest. Right. So for a long time, you know, they called it Hollywood for ugly people. To your point, it was a transient place. It was a swamp. It's miserable in the summer. It's freezing cold in the winter, right? You have three days, maybe in the spring and the fall, and there's just really no reason that anybody wants to hang out there, right? You know, and, but now it's a place to your point where like there's so much money and potential opportunity that people say, I'm going to go there and I'm going to stay there. 
And the other part, too, is maybe this is like somebody getting off the bus in L.A. is you get to Washington and you could completely recreate yourself. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it is a lovely place to live now for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. But also for me in this job, right, like there are a lot of people, listeners of the show, I'm sure, who know politics is broken, understand Washington is a, a messed up place, but don't know exactly why or how or how it got that way or what it's like, you know, on the ground. And I feel like, you know, I think political insiders will like this book, but it's not written for political insiders. It's written for people who care about politics and want to know why the political insiders are as weird and messed up as they are. And I then can, you know, it's almost like a hitchhiker's guide through Washington, <laughs> right? Where I can be like, okay, now I'm going to go into this room, I'll go to poker nights with Sean McElwee, the guy you mentioned before, the Democratic consultant who bet against his own clients on political betting websites and, and with friends and was very open about his gambling. I saw this and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is crazy for me to see. But so many people around him didn't see it that way. They were like, oh, you know, he's a guy. He had a theory of the case. It's good to bet on politics because there's a heuristics quality to it. If you can you know, have a tactile feel for the times you were right, the times you were wrong, if you have skin in the game, you will be a better consultant. And so people were like, all right, I mean, it's working out for him. It must be fine. And I'm sitting there like, don't you have skin in the game anyway? Like, don't you want to win for the sake of A, being a good consultant and B, like if you have a belief system, like say you care one way about abortion or another way about abortion or you care about a right to vote or not, whatever. Isn't that the skin in the game? Like what's going on here? That's a great point is that the belief system, you have one when you get to Washington, even if you don't spend a lot of time thinking about it or philosophizing about it. And then you get to Washington and the inevitable transformation and or erosion of said belief system begins, which is it is a system. It is a system that has been around longer than you have, and it will probably be around in some form or another after you are gone. And you are trying to find your place in it. And so you think about, you know, Sean McElwee, who's like, you know, comes from a conservative evangelical family. Then he's a hyper progressive. Then he's like, well, but, you know, the progress, you know, somebody works for him, says, well, the progressives are really whiny. They're never happy. Right. And then you could start to see what happens. You mentioned, is it Leah? She's very progressive. She hangs out with the people in New York during the uh, Occupy Wall Street stuff. And she's like, I'm for progressive candidates. I'm for progressive candidates. I hate when these people come in and they bring their moderate Democrats in primaries and they beat me every time. And then she's like, oh, wait, maybe I need to win more than I need to do this, because if I'm not winning, people aren't going to pay attention to me and I want people to pay attention to me. And if I'm raising money for losers, they won't. And then you have Matt Schlapp and Mercedes Schlepp, who I go back to the Bush White House with, who were the perfect, maybe they are the poster children, Ben, for what happens when you abandon, from my perspective, every last bit of what you believed in, right, from policy to politics to faith in search of power, money, and everything else. And it turns out that when you scratch a little bit deeper on some of these folks, a lot of people don't like what they see because, frankly, Ben, I'm going to be candid about the schleps. They're not that likable anymore. So this is the Lincoln Project, right? So this is a, a topic that obviously means a lot to you guys. And, and it means a lot to me, too. As a journalist, I wanted to figure out how the Republican Party went from the George W. Bush White House, where Matt Schlapp worked and was the political director, to MAGA Republican you know, loyalists, which Matt Schlapp is now kind of one of the kings of the Matt Schlapp loyalists. And so it wasn't like I want to write about Matt Schlapp just because I think he's interesting. 
he is in some ways, but really the reason I wanted to write about him is because if I could figure him out, I felt like I could figure out a big chunk of the Republican Party. How do you go from one thing to the other? And not just how, but what does it look like on the inside? Is there a mental gymnastics going on? Is there a recognition that one thing was a game and it's still a game? Is there a tortured soul thing going on? Is it hard for him to be who he really wants to be? Is it ruining his relationships? And Matt Schlapp's year that I spent time with him was like one of the most dramatic years he's probably ever had, you know, including a rising and falling of, of Trump and the connection to influence, but also his own reputation has been tarnished by allegations of groping a male staffer in Georgia at the end of the of the election. It's just this is a guy who's been through a lot and watching him go through that. A person who came to defense of Donald Trump after the Access Hollywood tape broke. Matt Schlapp and Mercedes Schlapp were some of the first people to come to his defense. This is a groping allegation itself. After Matt goes through his, one of the first people to come and kind of stand by him on stage at a, at a CPAC event is Donald Trump. It just feels like there's a full circle moment there and you can really see how these things happen and what loyalty means and what it costs you and what you get from it. Well, and the circle metaphor is the right one, which is everybody has talked about that in Washington, D.C. and maybe any place of power, right? There's a continuum. And sometimes you're closer to the top. Most of the time, you're probably somewhere in the middle and everybody spends their time in the barrel, right? Believe me, I, I know this myself. And the truth is, is that your time in the barrel will be shortened by the number of people who at the end of the day will come to your defense. Donald Trump coming to your defense, I'm not sure you know, helps in Trump world, right? I don't think it helps in the broader DC community, especially because, you know, they're uber Catholic. They sort of look down on people. I mean, Ben, they live on a street called Mansion Drive. The largest house on Mansion Drive. You know, <laughs> you're right that it doesn't necessarily help in broader DC to have Trump come to your defense unless Donald Trump becomes president again. Like, this is the thing. This book has a lot of gambling in it, right? The actual gambling we talked about with Sean but also just like the bets people are making in general. And Matt Schlapp and lots of others have just bet big on Trump. And that means they could go bust, right? If Trump is indicted or put in jail or loses and it's embarrassing and the Republican Party decides to move on, I mean, I don't know, does the Republican Party move on that quickly? Even if that happens, like it's hard to imagine, but say that happens, all right, Matt Schlapp, like he's in, you know, the dustbin of history or whatever. But if Trump is successful and he sees in Matt a loyalist, I don't know. I think a lot well, of people. I mean, that's the other part, too, is so much of this is transactional in nature. Trump only cares about loyalty. Right. And if Matt is always loyal, he can probably overlook allegations of this or that. He can probably overlook a lot of things. And all of a sudden, Matt's on top again. Maybe. I mean, the thing is, what do you lose by that, too? I mean, you lose some identity. You lose moral core. You're always out there like explaining to people that thought they could trust you what you're up to. I mean, you mentioned Ian your old pal from, you know, forever ago. I mean, that's the story of them. Ian was Matt's right-hand man for years. He was so close with Matt that when he was having his third child, he thought when Ian was having his third child, he thought Matt and Mercy would be the godparents. And now they don't talk. They just don't speak. And part of it is politics. But the way that everything works is like, it can't just be politics. There's so many people who allow themselves to change their politics or, or allow other people to have different politics in them. But once it becomes personal, once you have a relationship that's fraying all of a sudden, I mean, the book is called The Big Break, right? But the big break is really made up of lots of little breaks. And so the break that happens between Ian and, and Matt, it's a lot of little personal things that happen that leads to this giant break, political, personal, 
you know, just done. And that is the story of so many people in Washington. Look at George and Kellyanne Conway. They're not, you know, they're getting divorced. Like these things have personal implications. And like any company town, the people that you work with are the people you live with. You end up dating. Look, my wife and I met at the Waco airport going to Crawford, Texas to work for George W. Bush. Everything is inextricably tied to one another. And so, you know, if you have fabulous success, right, there are people that you bring with you. And when you have fabulous failure, there are a few people, Ben, who will be with you. But there's a bunch of people, too, who are like, eh, call me when you get back above water. And so, yeah, it's all intertwined with one another. And so if one of those threads snaps, everything else unravels. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Sean a little bit, the Democratic gambling consultant. One of his problems was he had this theory that was like, as long as nobody really hates you, you're good in Washington. You know, people don't have to like you. You don't have to have people like you. But as long as nobody really hates you, you're good. And that was fine for him for a while when he was successful because people didn't really necessarily like him. But like, ah, he's doing good work. We're going to hire him. But when he was in the barrel, you need people to stand up for you. You need people to say, look, he fucked up or here's his theory or, or whatever. But we're willing to give him a second chance. Nobody's willing to give you a second chance if they don't like you. And, you know, you talked about how people come to Washington idealistic and they can change. And you mentioned that Sean had gone through so many changes. And that is a really interesting and big part of the book. But to me, what's even more interesting are the young idealistic people who went to work for Sean. They came in from the Elizabeth Warren campaign and the Bernie Sanders campaign, and they had this big theory of change. And they came to Sean's shop and they were encouraged to gamble themselves. They were shown data to, you know, kind of change their worldview, which may be better tactically, right? Maybe the moderate methodology in Washington was better in the Biden years, but they came as one thing and then they quickly started to change because the boss was showing them this way that things work in Washington and they were buying into it. And when he, at, you know, as the book proceeds, his, you know, you know, place in Washington gets shakier and shakier and shakier until ultimately he goes bust. And all these people who were almost in the cult of Sean the same way that people who went to work in the White House, you know, fell into the cult of Trump, you know, in some ways had, you know, kind of broke from that and had to be like, oh, my God, like, who am I anymore? Like, what is my belief system? Well, and that's the other part, too, is and I know I was guilty of this, is that what you do, who you work for all becomes part of your personality. It is imprinted on you or you imprint yourself on it. And so, yeah, when that is ripped away from you, when that changes, it can be traumatic, right? I even used to say in the aftermath, actually, my dad, I should say, give him credit for a couple of things I'm going to say here. One is, you know, after elections, everybody gets sort of the campaign blues, right, which is there's so much adrenaline, so much excitement, everything else. And then it's over. And even if you've won, right, that stuff all dumps out. The other thing my dad told me the story once, he said he was grousing about somebody. This is in the 80s, grousing about somebody he really didn't like. This person was giving him a hard time. And the guy he was working for said, you really want to get that person? And my dad said, well, I don't know. And he said, because if you really want to get that person, you have to spend a little bit of every day trying to figure out how to f that person. That's what you have to do. Like, that's also very part of D.C. And I think it's gotten, in some ways, more people like the guy my dad was talking to, not less, because the stakes, especially financially, Ben, are so much higher than they ever were. D.C. was never, I mean, there were always some people who had the mystical way of making money, but going to D.C. was not a great way to make money. Rising from legislative assistant to chief of staff was 
big because now you're chief of staff for a member of Congress or a senator and you've got great benefits. And, you know, in the old days, making $150,000, it is a lot of money, but you were never going to Portugal and Spain to surf. Right. You mean, I still think most people come to Washington because they want to be a part of something. They want to help someone get elected or pass legislation. I mean, you know, if you really want to be rich, like go to Wall Street. If you really want to be famous, go to Hollywood. You know, there, there's other places. But more and more, you're right. It's like you can look at these lobbying offices and they're getting bigger and shinier and the people are driving nicer cars and they're spending less and less time here because they're surfing somewhere or vacationing other places. And it's like, yeah, you can make a nice life for yourself. So let me ask you this. As you look forward here, you know, we're in the third year of the Biden presidency. Trump is back on the trail. And the thing about the, the Trump world in particular is so many of the people are such oddballs, but they're also interchangeable oddballs, which is there's always, you know, somebody's always coming and going from that orbit. They're in favor. They're out of favor. It's sort of King Lear on ayahuasca, right? Like <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to logically. So how do you see Washington, D.C. in this very, I'm going to call it turbulent time. I don't live there. I go back only when I need to, Ben, right? I have no desire whatsoever to live there again. How do you see it now? I think it's a broken place in a lot of ways. I think there's broken people and broken confidences and broken politics and broken relationships. And, you know, the book is about a bunch of people trying to put stuff together, whether it's put stuff together for themselves or for their country, or for their bank account or, or whatever. And I just think that's where we're at. Like, I mean, Trump, like we've said in this podcast already, like some parts of Washington remain the same and, and Trump has revealed some parts of Washington in addition to changing it. But he has fundamentally kind of broken the place. It's just it's flimsier now. There's more kind of showmanship and there's more partisanship. And it's just it's nasty. And are there signs of hope? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, Sometimes people point to, to ones and I'm like, yeah, I guess that's a sign of hope. But it's like, is that really, is that the bar? You know, the debt ceiling. There was a compromise. People voted together. That is pretty good for this era. But it's also like we barely averted economic calamity and we're going to like celebrate that like Washington is fixed. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Not yet. Right. But I think that you make a point, especially about the debt ceiling, which is one thing that concerns me about the normalcy bias, which I think a lot of people in Washington do have and get sucked into, is there was one senator who was quoted, I think, on background saying, we'll figure something out. We always do. They did by a hair's breadth, but it's not a normal time in an abnormal place, right? So an abnormal time in an abnormal place with broken people, right? Disaster is always on the edge. And I think this is one of those things. Um, I was listening to a podcast to just bring it back to succession for a second, which is, you know, whether or not it's succession or Shakespeare, why are we always fascinated or Game of Thrones? Why are we always fascinated by kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers? Because their machinations ultimately have an effect on how individual Americans or individual humans live their lives, whether or not it's an immediate feeling or it's a downstream feeling days, weeks, or months or years later. Yeah, and in Washington, it happens right away, right? Like sometimes these things can trickle out, how a president acts might trickle out to the rest of the country and the world in drips and drabs. But here everyone is like so plugged into it that all this stuff kind of matters on a day-to-day -day basis, on a business level, on a personal level, on a idealistic level, everything that happens on the national stage has a downstream effect on the smallest cogs in the, in the machine here. Let me ask you this. 
let's go back to Frank Luntz, who has probably the worst hair in politics. And that's saying something. He's always been an oddball. My interactions with him have always been strange. You know, you're out at this home he has in Virginia, all these weird knickknacks. I have been to his home in L.A. I have seen the scaled down version of the Oval Office. I actually met the Papa John guy at this thing at his house. Lucky right? you. Lucky you. Which is, I mean, this guy's hair made Wayne Newton's deal, like, put him to shame, right? Like, as far as the, the black, black dye or whatever. But again, Frank is probably the, like, ultimate example of a guy who like has this ability to convince people of things that you wouldn't think just looking at him would ever have any ability to do so, whether or not it was Gingrich or any of the number of political and or corporate titans that he's talked about using the words. But there he was. He said he had what a stroke and Trump caused it, right? Like, okay. But he couldn't help himself, right? Like, he couldn't help himself be get back in the game. He claims that Trump was the worst, right? But at the end of the day, right, Ben, he couldn't help himself. He claims that this was the man who almost killed him psychologically, right? But at the end of the day, he wanted back in there and was willing to do what it took to try and get there. Okay, there's a couple things about Frank Luntz. First of all, the reason I wanted to hang out with him in the first place is because the book has a lot of new people in Washington whose futures are in front of them. And here was a guy who's like, you know, past was behind him and it kind of ruined him, right? In a lot of ways. He was moving out of his place in Virginia. It was, yeah, filled with knickknacks. The original Bob's big boy statue was there standing century by his pool. And he filled all his cabinets <laughs> in his kitchen, not with pots and pans, but with baseball cards. It was a weird scene. It was like, it was like, you know, Tom Hanks' character in Big moving out of his home finally. And he is forever connected to Washington. He brought me there, or I, kind of sought him out there because he was trying to say, look, I'm done with this place. I'm moving. But he's not. He like has kept his penthouse in Washington, D.C. proper, one that he shares or at least shared with Kevin McCarthy. He would not tell me if he still kept a room there or not. But he's so connected to this place that this stroke, he said, that almost killed him caused by Donald Trump. He says he has to take medicine, but is too afraid of needles to inject himself. And so sometimes his sometime roommate, Kevin McCarthy, will do the injections for him. And so he is so connected to Washington that he basically has McCarthy as a doctor-like figure in his life, keeping him alive. He's not going anywhere. He's still, you know, is doing these focus groups. He's tried to help out the White House with their COVID response. He works with the Problem Solvers Caucus. He just can't help himself. He is forever like a part of this place. This is his world. Right. He's both the weirdest and the best exemplar, I guess, of what Washington really is, which is you can be this weird guy who can convince people, very powerful people to listen to you and to make millions of dollars doing it. But at the end of the day, you're still a really weird dude. Yeah. And also, like, is he a happy dude? Right. I mean, he's been more successful in Washington than anyone could ever imagine being. And still, he's kind of got this, you know, droopy dog thing about him where he's just like, he hates what the party's become. He hates what Washington's become. He sort of wonders about his place in it, though not as much as, you know, I would have liked. You know, I kept trying to get him to talk about, did you create this monster that is now killing you? And he wouldn't quite go there. But like, it's pretty clear that he was part of it. Well, I remember, you know, at the end of the 2004 Bush campaign, right? President Bush is reelected. My wife, then fiance and I go to work on the inaugural. And we had made the decision right after the election, we're leaving. 
we're leaving Washington, D.C. And not only are we leaving Washington, D.C., Ben, we're leaving for the very Republican-friendly confines of San Francisco, California. And it was amazing, you know, because there were 600 people jammed into this place. You know, the White House is existing, the administration's existing, and about once a week they'd have these meetings for a lot of people who'd come in from other states who were looking for jobs in Washington, and they'd be like, aren't you coming? And we're like, no. They're like, you're really not going to stay? I'm like, we're not staying. And they couldn't believe it. They're like, but you just won a re-election campaign. I'm like, we did. And you know what? Like, here's what I know. There's only so many jobs at the White House. I've already worked there. The job that I'd be qualified for, somebody still has, and they're not going to give it up. And I'm likely ended up at the agriculture department. And if the choice is ending up as a Schedule C, which is the lowest level political appointment at the ag department, one of thousands, or going to San Francisco and saying, okay, we're going to start something new. Let's go start something new. People just couldn't believe it. They could not believe it. Yeah. All right, Ben. So tell us what else are you working on here before we let you go? Well, you know, I'm back at my day job at the Washington Post covering politicians and kind of the the same stuff that I did for the book, but for articles now and, you know, looking for the most interesting people I can find. Well, there's certainly no shortage of them in Washington, D.C. So, Ben, I want to thank you, everybody. Ben's book is The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses His Mind. Ben, where can we find you on social media? I am on Twitter at at BTerrace. I tried for a whole year not to do any tweeting, but now that I have a book out, you can find me tweeting again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perfect. And always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Ben Terrace, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.